This podcast is offered to you by Zen Center North Shore on the web at www.zencenternorthshore.org. This program is made possible by donations from listeners like you. Good morning. (laughs) Really good to see all of you. Like sad to have Joan leave with, (laughs) like come back. (laughs) Why can't we go to her talk now? (laughs) But it's kind of perfect because I think um, as she was speaking about her, you know, love and devotion of her teacher, and there was this kind of, mm, I wouldn't presume her experience of it, but for me it brought up this sort of both the loneliness, separation from the, the teacher having passed, but also the connection, you know, the picture being right behind her and her feeling of the Blanche having her back. Um, And then for her to leave us and then (laughs) we have each other. But that's the weird thing. It's like, she's still here. And, you know, especially with Zoom, I think this is one of, the, one of the weird things is it reveals how connection is this feeling we have with each other, you know. It's really, without that feeling, there's just square pictures of, <laughs> on a laptop or whatever, you know. So just feeling each of you. I don't know all of you. Um, I mean, I've seen, I think, all of you before here, but some of you I know uh, from the Zen Center or from other places. Um, yeah, so this morning we can continue, actually, with this... this. Uh, feeling of appreciation for the teachings for each other as Sangha, um, being held by each other, holding each other in the present moment, each of us in our own spaces, but together as well, in the space of each other's being There's a big hawk that keeps landing on this tree in front of my house that um, I don't know if it's, they have a nest, a big nest I can see, but every once in a while they'll swoop down, majestically land on a branch and then they do this amazing thing, like all these little feathers and then they like, (laughs) 
I'm not seeing the hawk right now, but I can see the nest. I see some definite bird action, but anyway, that there's that kind of moment of appreciation when you see a being that reminds you of something. Of course, you feel it in yourself, you know, when you look at a hawk or a beautiful being, you see qualities that that are, of course, you're also, how could you know them unless they're happening in you? Or they are happening in you, whether you believe they were, that they come from outside or not. So that's kind of the uh, paradox of the teacher-student relationship is it's not really... So separate, but on the other hand, it, the uniqueness of any person, each of us being ourselves, we bring the um, uniqueness and interestingness to the to whatever dynamic we're in, as does the other person we're relating with. So that's kind of a, maybe it's like a systems. Uh, theory or systems thinking I'd like I like to say systems being you know the idea that where do you place the the locus of importance it's not in a system it can't be um, only in one place it's it's very quantum it has to be everywhere all at once or it can't be anywhere there's no point right if if the hawk was so beautiful and then I can't really relate to it it's everyone loses <laughs> but if I can appreciate it's like suddenly the hawk has my wings and I did think I would share a little this morning about the the sort of different styles of lineages as Joan mentioned our friendship started walking past each other in the streets and just and eventually recognizing, oh, wait, you know, who are you and who are you? And uh, realizing our uh, common uh, ancestor tree, sort of, you know, the different lineages, but very overlapping. Um, Suzuki Roshi, of course, being Blanche Hartman Roshi's teacher and Joan's teacher's teacher, and um, Trungpa Rinpoche being mm, the teacher who founded my community and my teacher's teacher. Um, but Trungpa Rinpoche and Suzuki Roshi were uh, encountered in, in the early 70s. And um, I know Trungpa Rinpoche saw Suzuki Roshi as a father figure, as um, and, and Suzuki Roshi would say, oh, my son. <laughs> so they had that um, kind of dynamic. And for thereafter, you know, their, their friendship actually influenced tremendously what, what the Shambhala tradition actually became kind of a half Tibetan, half Zen <laughs> manifestation. So a lot of the forms when I sit at the Zen center as part of the Sangha, 
I, I know all of almost all the forms, not all of them, but we do a lot of them. So it's like, oh yeah, that's <laughs> that seems like home, but it's very different expression uh, at the same time. For a long time, as long as Trungpa Rinpoche was alive, Suzuki Roshi, we placed a picture of him was on every shrine we had at the top next to his teachers from Tibet. He really considered him one of his teachers. So um, I think that's beautiful. It's sort of trans lineage, obviously very connected lineages, but very separated as well. I mean, the Zen tradition went came from India just like the Tibetan Buddhist tradition, but they branched off and, yeah, very, very different manifestations. And isn't it interesting when you think of a system, systems being, how, they, how you, we pick up what's going on in the culture. We are the culture. We are receiving. We are the chalice receiving the nectar, and we shape the, the form of the, ne- the water in the shape of the chalice. Each culture where Buddhism arrived, there was always a, a dialogue because Buddhism is not colonial or imperial that way. It's uh, dynamic, adaptive, um, collaborative, because the core of the teaching is not in anything other than uh, the nature of things being in harmony with reality. So the manifestation can change. The nature is, is the same in any place at any time. And those two in the interplay of those two is sometimes we call the interplay of absolute and relative truth being really ultimately the same thing. But then you could see how Buddhism would change quite a bit wherever it would go. So really in some ways, Suzuki Roshi and Trungpa Rinpoche, they're, Lineages that have been separated for over a thousand years. I happen to be fascinated with where the, the Yogacara teachings that they both came from, but that's, an, that's another story. But there is this funny story. You might have heard of it. It's a, a, some, I think, I don't know where it was. Some professor had like found out that Master Sung San, the Korean Zen master and Kalu Rinpoche, a great Kagyu Tibetan master. I think it was in the 80s, maybe 70s, 80s, I don't know. Brought them, found that they were, you know, had been separated like Suzuki Roshi and Trungpa Rinpoche for culturally for a long time. And he thought, oh, wouldn't it be amazing if we bring them together to have a, you know, discussion or debate around Dharma or discussion or whatever. And so he, <laughs> he invited them and you know, they came to this auditorium or something and their little entourage is the Korean Zen, you know, that color. It's like the gray, blue light. Yeah. So they came out and they're like, it's like, <laughs> it makes it seem like a boxing match. It wasn't at all. But then there comes the Tibetan robes, yellow and maroon, you know, they have their little entourage, their little entourage and they sit together. And, uh, you know, then I guess Master Sung San, you know, like it's very kind of uh, in a very sort of intense, <laughs> kind of flamboyant Zen, wild Zen style. He has an orange and he holds it up. He says, what is this? <laughs> it's like, well, hello. <laughs> and apparently, Kala Rinpoche, he just, it takes about a minute and he's just, 
And he's talking to his attendants, you know, the translator. He's just trying to. And finally, he, he after deliberating for a minute, he goes, what's wrong with this guy? Hasn't he ever seen an orange? <laughs> so, so I'm sure the professor was highly disappointed in the level of intellectual discourse going on. <laughs> but <laughs> that, was the, that was the joke all along, that, you know, Buddhism has a great tradition of intellectual study and all of that, but it's not, a, it's not sociology. It's not like a, it's, it's a lived experience. It's actually not book learning, right? We, we can study the Dharma, but if we didn't practice it, we'd be missing out, right? We wouldn't be able to make it live inside of the way we are, and we wouldn't see the world through the eyes of the Dharma. We would know about the Dharmas, and we would have ideas about them, but that's very different, right? And that's why we, we meditate. We, we try to experience our own nature and that of the world and understanding. I mean, that's why I'm nuts about this stuff is the endless learning turns the whole world into an art form of being alive and learning. Of course, I wish that that's what the larger society valued, that that was the system we were being in, that it, learning and caring for each other and, uh, was the top growth and care and and having enough for everyone and but you know a boy can dream right <laughs> but this exchange was was significant that between these two teachers in other ways because I think it revealed these cultural systems in which the teachings had emerged. There is a book uh, by Trungpa Rinpoche, A Skull Cup and the Teacup. It's, you know, about his take on the relationship. But if you know any of his teachings, he's constantly contradicting himself. <laughs> and you really, if you went through with a fine tooth comb, you'd have to be highlighting in different colors. It would just look like a completely confusing binary code because he was a very provocative teacher and he wanted to make you think. So he'd say one thing only to <laughs> basically just say, no, but it's also like this. And after a while you're reading it and it doesn't really make that much sense, frankly, to me. <laughs> I keep thinking, well, maybe some year this will make sense to me. No, it never <laughs> makes sense. <laughs> no idea what he's talking about. I it, it, And yet I can see parts of it, but Essentially, what he would say in this book, as far as I could understand, was that the Zen tradition has this tremendous, uh, brilliantly precise approach to developing prajna, or pra meaning best, and jna from the word jnana, or knowing, or wisdom, best transcendent wisdom, or best knowing, sometimes it's said. Knowing the best thing. What's the best thing? The thing that's always true. You know, your nature, the nature, Buddha nature, perhaps, um, basic goodness, knowing what is always compassionate, always wise. So our nature. So when Master Sung San is like pr pr holding up this orange, it's like, 
what is this? This everything like condenses into this moment of da da da. And you can see that in the history of Zen with all the koans and these riddles and dialogues between master and student. And sometimes those I also read and just scratch my head. <laughs> Even I read the commentary, I'm like, yeah, no, I still don't know <laughs> what you're talking about. It's like an inside joke. Uh, and, you know, maybe some people get it. <laughs> I know a story about Joni that when she was in her, I don't know which ceremony it was some, I think it was a ceremony where she was being empowered as a teacher. And, uh, you know, there's a traditional exchange in Zen, but at that moment, you know, kind of that moment in different styles, depending on the teacher, but like, what do you know? <laughs> and uh, I, I, the story goes that Joni said, I don't know anything. <laughs> and the, the guiding teacher said, don't show off. <laughs> uh, so it's very sincere, actually. I think that kind of captures her magic in a way. Like she's just so who she is, and I love it. And it's, you know, like one person say, oh, that was like, I don't believe that was a calculated thing she was saying. She wasn't being clever or philosophical. I think she was, she was saying it's not about that. In my experience of Joni, it's like, it's not about what you know, it's how you are. And like, that's what she is. She's how she is. And uh, I saw that's, to me, that's the same between both traditions. Now on the other side, when you have Kala Rinpoche saying, what's wrong with this guy? Hasn't he seen an orange? Like, he's not kidding either way. He's not being cheeky, by the way. That was like, truly, he was literally like, I've talked it over and I don't get what you're doing. <laughs> and, you know, um, oh gosh, I keep teasing this guy where he lives somewhere in South Dakota. One of my students, she lives in South Dakota and we were talking about him. He's become kind of a legend in my world. I don't know his name. Someone she had an acquaintance with and he, you know, he's conditioned in that region and very conservative. He's an older guy, old school uh, maybe you'd say kindly, maybe in other ways you say he has some outdated uh, ideas. Just depends on where you sit on that. I'd say pretty outdated. But he, uh, I guess he was done. She was visiting him with his wife, who she's friends with. And he finished his coffee and he just started went like this. <laughs> held, held up his empty. Now, the audaciousness of this guy. <laughs> I, we start, it'd be, it's become our little private joke. Whenever I meet with her, I'm like, <laughs> and we just like talk, we can't stop laughing. Like if I held up my co empty coffee cup without looking like, you know, <laughs> it's like, it will be filled. Like I, I kept joking with, I was like, God, if I had that much audacity, I, if somebody did that to me, I'd just freaking probably fill it up. Cause I think that's, that's stunning. The level of arrogance. I almost just want to go with, it, even though I probably shouldn't entertain you. But like, it's just ridiculous. But no, that's totally built on this culturalized non, you're not aware that you're playing in a realm, right? You have this assumption that someone's there to fill your cup when you raise it. Um, again, it couldn't, doesn't have to be an awful scenario. It just, it also does, it, it, but it could be. <laughs> 
could be a very blunt, unconscious way of assuming, and maybe not the most thoughtful thing. It really, though, it could totally depend. I'm, you know, I'm tempted to believe that, and this is why I keep joking with my friend about it, because if, if my girlfriend finished her coffee and held it up, like, I don't know, at this point, I'd be like, would you like more? Like, I'd be tempted to just, but I guess in that, in that case, I have, you know, some privilege to not have just feel like that's like assumed that I'll go get it. Although if you know me and you hold up your cup, you know, I'll probably fill it actually. So I don't know about now. It's all getting fuzzy. Anyway, it's all about who, who you know and what you know. There you go. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> it, it's it, what we know in these ways of relative reference points is our cultural conditioning, our societal conditioning. And this is one of the reasons I have so much compassion for differences um, of course, I'd like to see our behaviors not be unconsciously harmful to each other, fulfilling our potentials. I would like us all to support each other in bringing out the best in ourselves and caring about each other, what's important to each other. I really don't know what happened after the this. Uh, did the whole thing just evolved after this? Like, there's no more to the story that I know. All I know is... Kala Rinpoche, it's like, what's, and I think Master Sung, I don't know, I think it just like devolved into like a cacophony of rah, 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 like no one knew what was going on. I don't know. I don't remember the rest of the story. It'd probably be very interesting. Maybe they kept talking for another half hour. But for me, the story ends there because it's such a wonderful, like, no, they've both completely been genuine. This confrontational moment of challenging, what do you know? What is this? Like, awake. You know, sudden satori, sudden awakeness, sudden right now. What is it? There's no other moment. That kind of energy also exists in the Tibetan Buddhist tradition, but it's very different. Um, it's a different kind of manifestation. This extraordinary bright Buddha mind or Buddha nature of a uh, mind of Zen is transmitted in the midst of tremendous precision according to the monastic forms, you know, the early rising, the, the sitting still, the, the black robes and zafus and the, the, the gonging and all the coordination. I know every time I've gone to the Zen center <laughs> as a guest teacher, I know I'm screwing up at least five times. I just don't know when. I, I like, I, I've tried like, okay, left foot over the threshold. I got that one down. Eventually it becomes body memory, but then there's some other form I haven't done yet. And I'm the one who's like mm, looking around and it's great. That's great practice, right? There's nothing wrong with that. I love it actually. Um, I feel fortunate because I've, I've, I, I, I just know that I'm so bad at those things that initially that like, I don't, I'm, I'm willing to be very wrong about them. Like I don't even have like a sense of pride around my forms. I'm just like, whoops. Okay. And you know, I'm Joni so nice and kind to me that I don't end up feeling like a jerk or something for not doing the right thing. But, um, but I still learn, even though I don't know all the forms, I learned so much being open to that unknownness of it. 
in the Tibetan tradition, there's a thing called rochig or one flavor or one taste. And sometimes you'll hear this in the form of uh, teachers being asked, you know, basically like, how do you practice in the world? And they would say, the whole world is my monastery, right? The whole world is my retreat. That's a that's an answer I've heard before. And the idea with rochig or one flavor is that every experience could be the form of the, uh, the reference point of Dharma. So there's a way to train in, in which everything that happens is seen as uh, the teaching, the teacher, the teachings, the practice. My teachers have said, you know, that the most powerful teacher is a culture. I guess that goes both ways, for good and for bad, right? <laughs> well, if, if the culture is unconscious, if it's unaware of itself, it transmits these habits, <laughs> contagions that sometimes like flow through us and we do things that we don't know how they're impacting each other or we don't even know to care or we don't, we're kind of um, fish in water. So the Zen forms, the precision, the bowing, the, you know, I'm pretty sure this morning I bowed it off pace with people. I don't even know. At some point I was like, I don't know how many bows. I'm just going to keep going until I see Emily stop. And <laughs> that's what I did. I, you know, maybe if I could see more of people, you know, in person, I, I know I'd probably synchronize better, but, but the idea is like, to me, it's all one flavor of being, being wrong being right, knowing what I'm doing, not knowing what I'm doing. It's all a mind. It's all awareness. It's all being. It's all okay. In some ways, I've heard some people uh, talk about... um, realization of practice in that way of of like your lack of reaction to being wrong one of my teachers Lama Pajal who was uh, married to, uh, I guess the stepfather of my teacher the Sakyang he he was married to to Lady Kunchuk Sakyang's mother um, both Lady Kunchuk and Lama Pajal were super serious practitioners and I lived with them at Karmi Choling, the meditation center I studied and, and lived at. And um, that was an incredible cultural exchange because I'm not Tibetan. <laughs> so then, you know, if you have the Tibetan and Zen differences, then you have the American Tibetan differences, which are unbelievable. I used to try to talk to Lady Kunchuk and, you know, it would be like, try to strike up small talk and it'd be like, and she just like she'd just be like eating, looking at me, and I'd be like, "So okay, let me try something else." <laughs> you know, do do do. But like when I I was nervous, right? I was trying to like, and she was like, "It is fine whether you make noises or not. I'm comfortable whether we talk or not. 
so I don't know what you're doing right now because <laughs> she could tell that I was like trying to like do the, the Western thing and she just didn't get it. She's like, uh-huh, okay. And then if she had something to say, she'd say something. And if she didn't, she wouldn't. And it was like, this is so weird. Eventually I learned just to kind of calm down and not try to do a thing, you know, of keeping the conversation alive. It was such a powerful teaching. It's not like she was right and I was wrong, although she was an amazing meditation master, but it was more like she was just willing to hang out with me, not knowing what I was even doing or saying half the time too. And then I just started to be willing to just hang out. And then, you know, you'd have the most amazing exchanges. <laughs> but I remember this story. I brought this up in uh, their teachers of mine that I love. But I brought up this story, too, because I remember hearing a story about Lama Pajal. He was at these, this big puja. So pujas are like these uh, offering ceremonies in Tibet that are very elaborate they approach or maybe meet some of the ritual and Zen of its precision. And like, there's lots of stuff going on. You know, you have to do the incense this way and then this mudra and then this thing and didn't, you know, so it's pretty, you know, it's definitely not my forte. Um, I'm a slow learner, uh, but Lama Pajal, you know, is a master of this stuff, really good at it. And he's doing it. And, and, you know, the Sakyang's leading this puja and it's like a, you know, a lot of people and at some point, I don't know what, somehow Lama Pajal like didn't get a cue or messed up something. And he was, I think, I don't know exactly. I think he was sitting there and he, and the second was like, oh, I don't, I don't. <laughs> and my friend saw it, like he's trying to get his attention. I've actually been in that position with him before too, where he's talking to me. I can't believe he's talking to me. So I just don't hear him. And I finally, Oh, me. Okay. And then I have to do something so that I know that feeling, but Lama Pajal actually, according to my friend who was watching it, he said, he, all these people, like, you know, 100 people are watching him, and he's made this big mistake. And he just watched as Lama Pajal was just with, like, no hesitation, just immediately got up and started doing his thing. And he, then he was, like, watching him like a hawk. Like, is he embarrassed? Like, is it? You know, and he's, and he's just, like, <laughs> he's, like, completely relaxed. Like, and to him, my friend, he was, like, and I know Lama Pajal, so I happen to agree. But he was, like, that is an incredible sign of a life of practice, you know, that that he made this huge mistake and everyone saw it. And he was just like, it like, like immediately gone. Never even, I was like, yeah, so <laughs> I care and I'm here and I did and we're doing this. It's just, it's like traceless, you know, this instantaneous. Um, <clears throat> so I think in some ways, I can't speak to any differences really between the traditions. I can speak to the relative outer forms being different. But I really think the inner experience, the one of my ex-girlfriends used to take care of Kobinchino Roshi's um, children. She was like a nanny because he lived at Shambhala Mountain Center where I also studied, which is another Shambhala place. And uh, I mean, it, it, it's funny too, just colloquially, like just background story, like Trungpim, she was friends with almost every major Zen teacher around at that time. And there was all this exchange going on that was really fascinating. But Kobinchino Roshi was a very 
uh, important figure in, in our community. He introduced Orioki form to us and taught us how to do it. And But anyway, my ex was, you know, she's a very sweet person, taking care of the kids, but she would see Covencino in the, tr- they had, he had a trailer, this big trailer that they lived in on the land. And she would be walking through the room where he would just be like sitting there, you know, and she said it was just like, he was just so relaxed, like so relaxed that it was like, it's like almost like alarming, you know, it's like, <laughs> like you walk through a room and it's someone so relaxed that you're like, it like draws your attention. Kind of like the, the hawk landing on a branch. It's like, um, and she, he was just so spacious. And she said that when, <laughs> when the kids would be fighting and sometimes she'd like try to like, uh, like he'd be there and she would sometimes think maybe I should get his help or something and get him involved. And so she'd be like, maybe she'd say something and, and he would just like come over and just like look at them <laughs> He wouldn't say anything. He'd just be like really curious. And they would be like, <laughs> she said like this, the whole room would just get really spacious. And and it was like, and then he'd like go back and it was like, what the, he didn't say anything. <laughs> so it was good parenting though, <clears throat> you know, like totally present, totally resonant, totally with, but not even a word was spoken but she said she always had the feeling that that's exactly what was needed. Like it was just like attention, such, such thorough attention that it was, and, and you know, I'm sure it, sometimes some things would get said, sometimes in Japanese, sometimes in English, but it was just like, that wasn't the, that was not, in other words, that wasn't the feature, right? There could be, some things are logistical, you have to talk about, that's fine. I'm not suggesting that, that but. But to see, that's, that was my experience of living with Lama Pejo and Lady Kunchuk too, is this, the spaciousness of so much relaxation that when we would eat meals with them, <clears throat> when I finally learned that I didn't have to do the Western thing of like keeping the conversation going, that I could just let it die. I find that phrase so telling, by the way. I mean, talk about a built-in social anxiety around silence and space, right? Well, you let the conversation die. It's like, hmm. Anyway, so when I would be with them and not um, finally, you know, be comfortable being in that kind of space. Yeah, it doesn't have any, it's like the sky is the same in every skyline, but every city skyline is different. And I guess just, bring it to a close here and maybe we can dialogue a little before we end, but excuse me. I think that there's the most important, you know, at a time where there's a monoculture that's spreading in the modern world. Right. And, and
I've often felt like it's, it is the spaciousness of just being able to witness and be an open that allows for different difference and different perspectives to just be. In other words, if we're not referencing back to the, the spoken content so much as the most important aspect of the exchange, it's also like we're not preferencing concept over being, right? That being, it doesn't mean we, we don't talk uh, on a dialogue or dialogic level. If someone has a different view and we have an exchange, hopefully we can be compassionate and clear and have our own truth and boundary, but also try to help move that dialogue further. But ultimately, the words, you know, I don't, I don't think it's at that level that the real liberation or real joy or real humanness happens. That's part of it, right? It's part of it, but it's not the whole thing. I mean, it's, you can't fake this sort of thing, but, uh, I imagine, I don't know, because I haven't done this practice very much, very little, but in the, you know, like in the Rinzai school with the koans that they would give, like, you know, you go in and you say some words and then your teacher says, no, all wrong and go back and think about it more. And eventually, but I have a feeling that if you genuinely just came and said, I don't know, (laughs) and you were really just comfortable with yourself, they'd be like, yeah, well, none of that mattered anyway. You know, so like that's kind of the joke of all of those. It's like, it's not what you say, it's how you are. Uh, even in that tradition where it was so important to have that dialogue that way. But that kind of dialogue between teacher and student, between yourself and the world is always happening. Um, it's always happening that we're in conversation with reality. For me, it feels like uh, being able to just be in the space with people and not necessarily know what to say or not, but being comfortable with that is like um, being open and curious and loving. Mm. That's That's the Buddhist culture. of practitioners, I think. And really it goes beyond Buddhism too. That's like, it's so important to me these days. It's like, well, any tradition really, any spirit, any way that people can kind of, whether it's a, what an indigenous tradition of some, you know, a religion that maybe is a dominant religion that is practiced in a very, beautiful way by an individual you know I don't know there's so many and it is after all just one planet right it's one big thing
So I don't think that says a, a whole lot about the wildness of Zen and the craziness of Tantra, as, but uh, it's something. <laughs> I, the last thing I'll say is maybe though, it is like being crazy is just being sane when there's a lot of craziness going on or being wild is being um, true to yourself when there's a lot of fear. And, you know, it, I do think of it that way a lot, uh, that that's really what's, it's almost like a reverse emperor's clothes kind of thing. It's like if everyone's kind of struggling or uh, the society is not healthy, then if you behave in a healthy way, you seem like the anomaly in the system, you know? So <laughs> I think that's the spirit of it. That is also lonely at times. Very lonely. But we have each other this morning, so if anyone wants to dialogue or chat or bring statements, questions, whatever's and silences, we have some time. <laughs> yeah, I don't know whoever going got there would like to go first. It's, I saw hands either way. everyone from the Zen Center, uh, all the way from Toronto. Wow. <laughs> um, I was really, you said something, Nick, um, that just kind of like, whoa, um, let it be, or let it die. <clears throat> and in our tradition in Shambhala, we, we often talk about just be. And like maybe that's what needs to happen so that we can just be, we have to let it die. Whatever it might be. Um, you know, whether it's the conversation with someone or the conversation in our head or um, the way we want something to happen. We have to let all of that die in order to just be. That, that idea of a conversation dying, um, it makes me think about that, that little section uh, in Dogen where it's the tree and then the ash, and the ash is not the tree. And the tree is not the ash, but they, you know, they have, they they carry each other within them all the time, you know, and uh, you know, it, it, I don't know. That's just something that that makes me think of because the, you know, the conversation might die, but that doesn't mean that it it's it wasn't there. You know what I mean? It's it's just something. I thought of. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. You can't have uh, death without life, life without death. It's not like, in, and again, the system being 
it seems to be bigger than uh, any part by definition, right? So there's all these parts to the experience. Um, of course, the irony of us experiencing something, letting something, letting it, like letting go of trying to struggle with something while we witness that entire process, that's aliveness experiencing death, right? So it's like this weird, it's not, you know, that's, I've, I've been fascinated lately with the multifaceted as a, as a um, analogy for this. So like, you know, it's like you can have and life and connection and disconnection. It's all crystal, it's all the clear, but there's different spots relatively, yet they're all the one piece and the light shines through them equally, but they look from different perspectives. And I just love that. It's like, it doesn't have to be an either or proposition, any of it. Thank you so much for everything. Thank you for the humor. <laughs> so and I do have something, two things very funny that made me think this morning. First, overall, I think that everything is just so ridiculous. But I do say, I am new to all this. And I always say, well, I don't know anything. <laughs> so <laughs> it's like, and the other thing which made me I couldn't stop laughing. I am from Argentina, and my dad is the most horrible thing on the planet. He's great, but with his conditioning, and he used to do like this. <laughs> so, yeah, uh, for lunch, you know, like, like this, to serve water. <laughs> but he was great, you know, <laughs> it's what it is. Thank you. So uh, do you know this movie, The King of Hearts, from like maybe 1969 or so? Uh, you know, it's, uh, during World War I, this British soldier gets trapped behind enemy lines. And to avoid capture, he hides out in a mental institution. And, uh, you know, eventually, you know, the British come through again. And it's about time to rejoin, you know, the rejoin his unit and stuff. And he, kind of takes a look around and he looks and says, you know, here's all these people I'm living with, and those guys out there just killing each other. They're the ones who are crazy. I think I'm just going to stay here. Just as a follow-up to that, I, I haven't seen that film for a long, long time, but I think I remember, I might, I might be mistaken, but that, that there's no, it's all, um, it's all pantomime, that there are no words. I remember all these scenes of um, the city, and there was music, but there's no words. Is that? I think I think I think there was dialogue in it. I, you know, I think I think the I think it was in France, and I, I think that maybe some of the patients would have been speaking French. It was Alan Bates or something. I think I don't know. It's... Yeah, well, maybe that's interesting if there was dialogue because I don't remember the dialogue. I remember these scenes. In of all the the people who are let out of the mental institution who were 
riding bicycles and throwing balloons and doing all these things. And I remember all the um, being that was happening and it was just like this festival and this joy there. I don't, I, I don't remember. I remember the music, but I don't remember any words. So um, that also, that level, at least what I, what I came away with was about this, um, the power of the communication and the feeling tone and, and the being rather than the concepts. And I'm glad you said, I think there was, I think there was a dialogue because then what went through my mind, my reaction was like, oh, I'm wrong. <laughs> and then I realized, oh, this is a teaching. So, so thank you for that. So I too come from the Tibetan tradition before Zen and uh, it was called the Karmakaju tradition and uh, the monastery was in New York and my teacher was Kempo Kartar Rinpoche and uh, he recently passed. Um, he was originally uh, from Tibet and came over the mountains and um, was then um, sent to America by uh, the Karmapa to uh, start a monastery. And uh, I took refuge with him and took my first vows with him many years ago. So there's a, there's a, a love for the Tibetan tradition inside of me when I heard that uh, Suzuki Roshi and uh, uh, Trungpa Rinpoche were, were friends and uh, uh, family, I was thrilled. I had done a, a retreat once with uh, a, uh, a student of Trungpa Rinpoche, and I was amazed that they did Yoriyoki, and, and I loved it. <laughs> um, and it was it was very sincere. I, I stumbled all over the place with it, but uh, but so then when I discovered Zen later, I was all set. I. I felt right at home with that and uh so what what strikes me uh in Zen, uh, buddhism in america is is a perfect example of what i think the buddha meant or shakyamuni meant is that everything is impermanent everything is a, a flow everything is going to change we in america are taking what wisdom we can from everywhere from every tradition and the noble truths are the noble truths wherever you go. Yeah, if it's the forest tradition or the Theravadins or the, the you know, Mahayana, or it doesn't matter. I mean, the wisdom is not uh, exclusive to one sect. And uh, so I love it. Um, so I read widely lately and from different traditions. And it seems like uh, the notion, though the wording may come strictly from Indian or Chinese or, or Japanese, it all comes down to, you know, the, the notions of uh, impermanence and, um, you know, uh, dukkha, you know, and uh, the things that are, that are all the same. And I'm still a beginner. I mean, regardless of whatnot, I, I need a teacher to help me understand what the words mean. It's, you know, I struggle. So, uh, you know, I'm thankful for this medium. I live in Hampton, so it's real hard for me to get to Massachusetts 
especially now. But uh, so, you know, as we come in and out of uh, contact with teachings, um, you know, we are better for it. Uh, and uh, I think uh, the, the whole idea of, of watching things begin and end constantly is, is uh, a part of mindfulness practice. You know, we love to watch things be born, but we don't like to watch them end. <laughs> but unfortunately, this all reminds me, you know, with the teachers coming and going that things do begin and end. And that is a part of being present. So thankful. Thank you. When you would come down uh, here and, and yeah, we could be all of us in the physical space, but Sangha changes. In fact, we have a wider potential to, but at least we have each other right now. This is not a joke. And, you know, like when you were talking, I just had this feeling of like, right, you know, this is the, for me, this is the inter. Uh, why Sangha to me is this node of teachings, teacher, student, peers. It's it's a it's it's. Like, I had a friend, a Zen, same lineage as Joan. meditation body this idea in zen that like whole zen, you know, and the whole uh, group is like a living being this is also a thing that would you know, little cells and it's another way of talking about it but anyway i just love that in like in other words your devotion to practice when you, it lights up my heart like uh you know like et <laughs> just like like when you start time like what i like i'm so grateful when i came in here and saw us in our square sitting or you know gathering this way on it's like yeah, it's uh, no. I've really been feeling this so strongly lately because I'm home all the time. I used to travel and teach a lot, and now that I'm home, which is not, frankly, it's nice for me to be fortunate situation. But I'm really seeing. forward with this pandemic and how the secondary planet and people and the way people be in there. But I think a situation is working from home or stuff with the computer, which I'm not as didn't do as for some people that's more, but one thing that's really been struck. Wow. It really is about the process. Like, this is it. Like, this is the moment we've been waiting for. 
this is the life. This is the thing we're this event someday. That might be one of the most empowering things to me about being a practitioner is that, you know, that like, oh, wait, this is really it. This is that, that, you know, I will die. That's natural process. But while I'm alive, may I fooled rainbow all the time. You know what? Let me just stop and smell the roses, come back to my senses, joy that this is it. My to-do list, which, by the way, is just like a rainbow. In fact, it gets further. It gets longer than the distance. There's nothing to do than I could ever catch up with. So, what's that? Oh, it's fine. Like when you get something done, it feels good. You know, it's fine. And then there's the next thing, and hopefully, you take a moment to appreciate. But I'm even saying, in the middle of it, just like. feeling noticing and just like this this is it's another way of talking about that when we practice the present moment we're really practicing freedom really this is the all time in the tibetan tradition they call it the eternally present moment (laughs) um or sometimes they call it the never-ending dawn of Vajrasattva. So Vajrasattva is a, a Buddha. Uh, but like the idea of never-ending, constantly rising, good morning, constantly this moment is that. And that is our nature. The ever-shining mind that and heart. Really, that's it, right? The scaffolding, the skylines do not, they, they, they die. And together, there's a harmony where you, whatever's happening can be the accoutrement of your being, not the other way around. Culture we can share together. It's not a, so I mean, Dogen and uh, Long Chempa, great masters from, you know, Zen and, and Tibetan Buddhism don't think about enlightenment in the future. That's never going to happen. <laughs> it's only just this. It's just being. And not something that happened. That's completely it's just only can we be and learn and open. So it's more of a, it's totally a process. Totally makes it fun too it's like an art form right you can't yeah appreciation <laughs> good unless we have any other last thoughts i'll leave that open for one more moment does anybody have any last uh thoughts or comments for nick questions wendy you've been quiet you have any questions or comments for nick well i i just want to say thank you um to everyone but uh you know this this has been such a really wonderful morning for me i i'm so happy just to share in this appreciation for 
our teachers today, all of them. I think it's really wonderful to um, acknowledge all of them and especially Blanche today. I mean, it's just really wonderful. And I so appreciated being able to offer the ceremony and to have everybody join in with that. Um, thinking a lot about my Americanness over here right now and what our, you know, what our job is sometimes that anxiety about like, what's our job as you know, Western folks taking this up and you know, I, I don't know, but I, I really feel that heart of what you're saying, Nick, which is we're, we're doing it. Um, we're sharing in it and it's really wonderful. Um, if you are able to do so, please make sure you click out of here and offer some Dana Paramita, some, some offering for Nick, um, for his beautiful teaching. We want to make sure we make him a beautiful offering. So if you're able to contribute, you know, please do so that we can offer that to Nick for being here today. Um, and it helps us just continue to do what we're doing, which is connect with our teacher and other teachers like Nick. So please do that if you're able to do so. And other than that, I think it's time to go enjoy this beautiful sunshine that's going on out here today. And I really appreciate seeing everybody and I hope everybody has a wonderful day. Thank you so much, Nick. We hope you enjoyed this episode. This podcast is made possible by donations from listeners like you. For more information or to donate, please go to www.zencenternorthshore.org. Thank you.